We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in chapter 4 this morning, just three verses, verses 14 through 16. If you're visiting with us and don't have a Bible, or if you're regular with us and don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you. It would be page 1003. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to take that copy home with you. Christian, you need to get some help. You need to get some help. Every Christian is fighting a difficult battle. Every Christian needs help. You and I need to get help. And thank God in our passage this morning, Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, we find plenty of help. Let's read together. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why don't we go to God for help? Let's begin our reflection and exposition of this passage with that question. Why don't we go to God for help? And if you think, oh, I'm perfectly happy to go to God for help, uh, an indication of our willingness to go to God for help and our sense of our need for help from Him will be revealed in our prayers, what we pray, how we pray, how often we pray, how ongoingly we pray. Indeed, this sermon will end with an exhortation and great encouragement to pray. We will get there in time. For now, why don't we go to God for help? Well, maybe one reason we don't go to Him for help is because we believe He can't help us. Uh, He has helped us plenty enough And the rest is for us. Oh, we might never actually say, I don't think God can help me. But maybe that that is the, the lurking, unstated reason why you don't go to Him for for help. Or maybe the answer is He won't help. He won't help me. Uh, I'm too sinful, He won't help me. I've heard I have to help myself before He will help me. And And I have more helping of myself to do. So surely if I go to him, it would be presumptuous. He will not help me. Maybe another reason we don't go to him for help is because we don't don't think that he'll understand what we're going through. Um, Okay, maybe he can help. Maybe he's willing to help. But he'll, he'll kind of roll his eyes at us. It will be begrudging. Uh, He won't understand our difficulty. Or maybe another reason we don't go to him for help is because we don't believe that we need any any help. 
Well, in today's passage, we will find all of these reasons not to go to God for help addressed in one fashion or another. And there is one, one reason we don't go to God for help that is particularly in focus in this passage, which I'll draw your attention to later. But to set things up here, let us consider that these three verses, short as they are, are the message of Hebrews in brief. I was at a theological conference this last week. Uh, You may have heard of the Evangelical Theological Society, and they have a journal, and it's a society of theologians of various kinds, uh, but largely conservative, who, who do work of scholarship and write papers, and they produce a journal, and once a year the society Society meets to share their work and engage together. And I have a number of friends there. I was there in 2008. I may make it a regular thing. But I recognized immediately where I was when I walked into the lobby of this convention, this sort of hotel convention. It wasn't really, really big, but there were maybe 2,000 people there. And in this lobby, several hundred milling about, coffees in hand, conversations happening between scholars as they pick up their conversations from last year specialists and scholars, and I depend on them because I can't be a specialist in everything. I depend on commentaries and various helps, and those of you who teach the Bible know that part of the work is knowing where to get your help. Um, and being at this event helps to personalize my engagement with those, those helps, but I did notice a kind of a uniform, and there was a spectrum. But as the ties got higher, I believe that the scholarship increased. So... <laughs> So, so older ties, maybe not tied very well, and a little higher like this. Okay, that's one level. And then the bow tie is, is really uh, serious scholarship going on, going on there. If you have a bow tie on, you probably live on a campus of a seminary or academic institution. Well, I was sitting in the lobby, oh, I think it was Thursday morning, working on my, my stuff and just being there in the environment And I had listened to a paper or two and one that I didn't really understand. And I thought, my job is to make things plain. You know, the pastors who are scholars have that work of both getting clear in their own mind, but then having to make things clear to their people. And and I have the pleasure of preaching every week and I love it. How can I make this passage plain? And then then Mr. T popped into my head. Now, let let me explain. A couple of years ago, as a gift, uh, a dear friend gave me uh, Mr. T in your pocket. It was a small orange thing on a keychain. It could go in your pocket. And on the Mr. T in your pocket, there were six buttons. And with each button, you'd hit a button, and Mr. T would speak to you a particular phrase. And you may recognize some of these 80s kids. Uh, I pity the fool. Don't give me no back talk. And don't make me mad. There were three others. I'll just stop there. None of them were vulgar. One did, one did involve the word shut up. Um, uh, but I haven't said that one. So Mr. T in your pocket. And I don't know why it popped into my head. Except that I was doing the intuitive subconscious work of making things plain. This passage right here is like that. This passage right here is the book of Hebrews in your pocket. It really is. If you want to internalize the message of the book of Hebrews, go ahead and memorize these three verses. It forms a kind of a summary of the whole book. 
The book of Hebrews includes a body, an argument that fills most of the letter. I think there's 13 or 14 chapters. I think it's 13. And the body of this letter or sermon is made up between chapters 5 and chapters 10, through chapter 10. Chapters 5 and 10 are bookended by these concise summary statements. In fact, if, if you were to flip over, we won't do that this morning, to chapter 10, verses 18 through 25, you would find a little bit of a longer summary, but just like this. And you could parallel each of the lines and find that what he has said in short here, he has said in short over there. So if you're wondering what he's trying to get across, if you're feeling a little lost in chapter 6 or 7, and you might, I will do my work to make things plain. But if you feel lost in reading the book of Hebrews, go back to verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, right here. This is the heart of the matter. He means to develop it and expand it and convince you of it and preach it from the Old Testament which we will do, but he means also to put it in a kind of a bite-sized form, like something you could memorize, to have on your mind and in your mind, like a lozenge to keep in your mouth all week and all day long. I promise you that whole chapter and a half on Melchizedek will be hard to stick in your mouth and, and meditate on and, and even maybe taste in the sermon, but I'll do my best. But in this case, this is, this is Hebrews in miniature, in Brief Hebrews in your pocket. In fact, this passage is a bit of a preview of what is to come. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, 28, will focus on the superiority of Jesus' high priesthood, which is expounded in brief here. And chapter 8 through chapter 10 expounds the superiority of Jesus' offering, which he offers in heaven as a priest on our behalf. So in a way, this little passage here is a bookend, mirroring another bookend, in in between which is the argument of the book, but it also is a preview of what's to come. So helpful are these three verses. They're structured this way. If you look down at the page here, you'll see verse 14, let us hold fast our confession. And then verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We have two exhortations, two things that we we should do. And that first exhortation focusing on our fidelity to doctrine or the truth about Christ. And and the second one concerns the confidence that we, we should have in communion with Christ and the triune God. But both of these exhortations are held up and grounded in the truth of Jesus' high priesthood. He's a great high priest. You noticed it in verse 14. Since we have a great high priest, therefore let us hold fast. Then verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And then verse 16. Let us with confidence draw near. Really, this passage is formed with three sentences, and we'll take it in three steps this morning. We begin with a requirement that we hold fast. We progress to a reason we ought to do that for, and then teaching on the high priesthood of Jesus, and then then finally, the resources that we need in order to go about this requirement. 
Well, let's begin. What's required of us? It is costly, friends, to hold fast to Jesus, but we must. It is costly to hold fast to Jesus, but we must. If we're to put the message of Hebrews in three sentences and three little buttons on the Hebrews in our pocket keychain, this would be the first thing. And we've heard this over and again in this book, and we will hear it again. An acknowledgement from our author that what we have to do is very difficult, and we must do it. We must hold fast to what? We must hold fast to our confession. Now, it's more than just holding fast to words. It's holding fast to a person, to Jesus. But But what we find out here is that holding fast to Jesus entails holding fast to words, actual things that we believe about him. We believe certain content about Jesus. We believe he is a particular person. We believe that he has done particular things. We hold fast as a church to a confession. And how beautiful is that confession that we've made, that that profession of faith that we offered together in unison only minutes ago in our service. J.C. Ryle spoke of the importance of this very kind of thing. A religion without doctrine or dogma is a, a thing which many are fond of talking of in the present day. It sounds very fine at first. It looks very pretty at a distance. But the moment we sit down to examine and consider it, we shall find it simply impossible. We might as well talk of a body without bones. No man will ever be anything or do anything in religion unless he believes something. No one ever fights earnestly against the world, the flesh, and the devil unless he has engraven on his heart certain great principles which he believes. And what we are to believe about Christ is as important as the fact that we are believing in the person of Christ. Christ. It is the content and the substance of the person that we entrust ourselves to. And it's costly to hold fast to these true things that we profess together and confess. Yet we, yet we must. Well, what is it that we are, we are confessing together? This, this statement that I'm holding out to you first assumes that it is difficult, difficult to hold fast That is, to the confession that Jesus, who was man, is also the Son of God. And by Son of God, it means that he is the Davidic king, that human son of David to come, who would reign over all the earth from sea to coast to coast, from sea to sea, over all the land from the rising of the sun until its setting. The righteous reign of the Son of David has come in the person of Jesus. But in addition to him being the son of God in that sense, because David and his son were sons of God, he is that divine, eternal son of God. He is more than any mere man, but he is God the son. That's what we profess and confess Jesus to be. He is the Davidic king and he is the divine son. And this command to hold fast our confession, you can just hear true, two true things under it. The fact that it is a difficult command to keep. Holding fast, we have to be told to hold, to hold fast. Believers are in hard times anywhere they are 
found, tempted ever, all of us, to leave off Christ, maybe because of overt persecution or maybe because of the subtle, gentle, nevertheless persistent pull of the world's pleasures where we're drawn away from Jesus. You may be vulnerable to falling away because of the subtle yet deceitful pull of your own heart in unbelief. And yet when the pressure is on through persecution, we are also tempted to, be, to pull away and fall away from Jesus. This headline from this last week caught my attention for obvious reasons. Simply being a Christian is not enough, is enough, excuse me, to get you arrested in Iran. British government report, Iran Christians number between 500 and 800,000 in a country of 86.7 million. A shocking new report, report from the British government details that the violent persecution of the Christian minority population continues unabated in the Islamic Republic of Iran. And late last month, the United Kingdom published its study detailing the severe mistreatment of Iranian Christians. The number of Iranian Christians may exceed one million based on estimates, but the, the better estimate is 500,000 to 800. And when asked what the U.S. and other world powers can do regarding the crackdown on Iranian Christians, I can't read his name and didn't try, excuse me. So an Iranian Christian who is the director of the Religious Freedom NGO, Article 18, wrote in an email, we believe the world leaders can play a positive role in helping, helping the persecuted faith communities and end the religious apartheid in Iran. One of the effective measures that Western governments can take to help is sanctions targeting Iranian oligarchs and their families that are close to the regime living abroad by blocking their assets, imposing travel bans against them, etc. So there's a concern for how Christians are treated in other, other places, and we should pray for our brothers and sisters in places where we hardly hear about what's happening because news doesn't get out. And yet we can be thankful for reports like that that get to us so that we might pray. But that kind of a headline and report is just a reminder about what happens to Christians in this age. We are not welcome here when we make this confession in public and overt and clear ways that Jesus is the king of the universe, that a crucified and buried man really did rise from the dead, that our first allegiance really is to him. Those are allegiances. That is an allegiance with implications. That is an allegiance that is not welcome in our age. The reason we're told to hold fast our confession is because holding fast is difficult. And Christians in Iran, as here, no doubt, are vulnerable to disillusionment, to disorientation, to growing disheartened in following Jesus. When you're feeling alone, is this really the way to God? Is this really worth it? I had better be right. Am I right? Is this true or not? And he addresses, this author addresses Christians who may be disheartened and vulnerable to leaving off the faith, to finding a more comfortable and convenient way to be religious, maybe even Christian, without the consequences of overt identification with Jesus. So in saying this, let us hold fast, we pick up 
the fact that this is a difficult matter. And secondly, in saying this, he's communicating that it's necessary. And we've already heard this in several ways. If you're in a, in a windstorm, we have hurricanes come through close enough to South Carolina. We're fortunate. We just catch the outer, the outer winds. But our friends down in Florida really, really get it sometimes. And if you imagine someone in that kind of a windstorm, it doesn't, it doesn't do you much good to hold on to yourself, to hold fast to yourself. You'd fly away just the same. You, you have to hold on to something stable if you haven't gotten out of town. And this is absolutely necessary for us. Don't forget in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6, we read these words. Now Moses was faithful at all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And as we've said, he's not saying that to scare them and drive them into constant introspection. No, but to look to Jesus. And he is offering that qualification for some will fall away. And those who fall away should not presume they are safe with God. And neither should we if we let go. Or or later in chapter 3, we're told to take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold fast, hold our original confidence firm until the end. And those who truly belong to Jesus will heed these warnings and hold fast to him all the way until until the end. Holding fast is necessary, and holding fast is, is difficult. Well, thankfully, the book of Hebrews is telling us more than hold fast, and it's necessary to hold fast. In fact, we've already spent a matter of time on that theme and argued for it, and so hopefully you're convinced of it by now. But there's more that the book of Hebrews has to say, which means we advance now to our second, our second part, the second button on Hebrews in our pocket. And that is that we have every reason to hold fast to Jesus because he is a great high priest. We have every reason to hold fast to him because of who he is for us and what he has done as our great high priest. Verse 15 here. After telling us to hold fast, sentence number two. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Well, in this age, the average American and even maybe even ourselves don't wake up in the morning and think, how are we going to find a better high priest? How are we going to find a better priest? We don't think much about priests at all. Well, the weeks to come will show us why why, how this would have landed on the original hearers, but also why we desperately need a priest, a high priest, a great high priest, just like Jesus. But we'll get to that soon enough. Let me just, for now, break down this matter of high priest, great high priest. A priest, what is a priest? A priest is a mediator or a go-between. God is in heaven and he is holy He is the creator of all things, perfect in righteousness and majesty. 
And you and I are sinners down here, perfectly sinful. How are we going to get from here to the presence of God? How will we be restored and reconciled to the God who made us given sin? Well, we need a go-between, a mediator, someone to bring us from here to Him. And from here to Him safely. Because His holiness can be compared to the fireball that is the sun. Well, you and I shouldn't want to make our way to the sun that close, lest we get burned up. But we need someone who can bring us into the presence of God safely. We need a priest, someone who represents God to us and someone who represents us to God. Someone who is like God and someone who is like us in all the right, in all the right ways. Well, what is a high priest? Well, Israel would have had priests in her life that worked at the temple. And a high priest would have gone into the most holy place right up to the sun of the presence of God. Once a year to represent us. Aaron with his garments and the names of the tribes of Israel on his garments to communicate that he was representing the people to God. And if he'd done all right, he came through blood then by virtue of his representative presence, the people of God by faith go into the presence of God. Just once a year though. And that sure doesn't look like a return to Eden. The whole purpose of the tabernacle system as we explored in months prior was to bring people into fellowship with God. But it wasn't sufficient to do that, was it? Which is why we need more than a high priest, but we need a great high priest. One who can do what that high priest did in the Old Testament, but all the way and actually get us all the way to God. To deal with all of our sins, not at a time and for a time, but once and for, for all. So when he says we have a great high priest, this is what he's referring, referring to. Well, why is Jesus... A great high priest. What makes him so great? Well, we have some insights right here in this short passage that summarize what the whole book teaches. Well, he's a great high priest in the first place because of where he has gone for us. Look at verse 14. Since we have a great high priest, and what's so great about him? Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus who was himself a man, that name Jesus, used typically when referring and emphasizing his humanity. Jesus, the Son of God, that divine Son of God. That's who he is. And look at where he has gone. Who has passed through the heavens, like Aaron would have passed through the curtains into God's presence. Jesus has, thinking spatially here and even in terms of his ascension, He's risen from the dead and he's passed through the heavens and he's in God's presence. That's a, a very efficient way to say several things, isn't it? He's passed through the heavens. Well, that tells us that Jesus, who was crucified and buried, is alive. He's risen from the dead. Well, where is he? Well, he's not here. He's in the heavens. He's passed through the heavens. He's in God's presence. And what is he doing there? Well, as the first verses of the, the letter told us, he is seated at the Father's right hand, and he is reigning. And he is also interceding there for us. A precious truth worth meditating on for a moment. In chapter 7, verse 25, we're told that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here, as we're told that he's passed through the heavens, so many truths about our Lord and our high priest come to us in that simple image. So you imagine Jesus, the Son of God, passing through the heavens, and he is He's risen from the dead and he's seated, which means his work of of dying for our sins is complete. And he's risen from the dead and he's reigning. He's also praying there for you and for me, which we professed just earlier this morning. You're not always sure what to pray? He does know what to pray. He even makes up for that weakness of yours. Feel like you don't have the right words? He leads you in prayer. He's praying right now for us. He's making intercession for us. And he can do that because he's not dead. And he can do that because he's not here. He's passed through the heavens and he's at the Father's right hand. And all of that is intended to comfort us and compel us to hold fast. All of that is a very good reason to hold fast to Jesus. Who else has risen from the dead? Who else has paid for your sins? Who else is praying for you right now? Well, don't hold on to yourself. That's not a safe, a safe and secure place to be. Hold on to Christ who is safe and secure in the presence of his Father. So why is he a great so high priest? What's so great about him? Well, in the first place, he's great because of where he has gone for us. Well, in the second place, he's great because where he has been for us. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What a big truth that is. And let's meditate on that truth by asking and answering two questions that are likely on your mind. How is it that he has been tempted in every respect just as we are? He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have nuclear codes. There are all kinds of temptations that we experience in forms that would have been unfamiliar to anyone in the first century. It is not the specific forms or instances of temptation that Jesus has experienced in the same way, but it is that he has experienced the same kind of temptations. Hatred, it was a thing in the first century. Deception, that was a thing too. Lust was a thing. Those were all things. And those are all the things that we experience in our frail humanity as well. Hatred, greed, lust, deception, and the list could go on. We may have different devices and we may cook up different ways to go about these things. But these are our temptations, the same temptations that Jesus would have experienced in kind. So yes, Jesus has been tempted in every way we have. 
And it says, yet he's without sin. Well, if it says he can sympathize with us, but he didn't sin, then how is it that he can really sympathize with us? Because having not sinned, he must not know what it's really like. Reminds me a little bit about some of the conversations we have around our home. When I'm sick, when I'm sick, I'm really sick. And I feel terrible and I can't do anything. And Christy thinks that if she had my sickness, she would still be doing all the things that she does. And I insist that that's impossible because look at me, I can't do anything right now. I must be sicker than you've ever been. And I joke, but I kind of believe it when I'm laid up in bed and sick. Well, we might apply a kind of a logic like this, like this to Jesus. How, how is it that he can relate with us? He hasn't apparently been under such temptation as to lead him to fall. Well, that says more about us than it does about our temptation. C.S. Lewis has helped us out with this. This is a, a tried and true and familiar illustration, but this is the time for it. No man knows how bad he is, Lewis writes, till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like after an hour. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. And so the fact that the Lord Jesus did not give in to temptation is not some indication to you that he can't really understand. It's an indication that, oh yes, he can understand. But I'll go even a little farther. Because his temptations were fitted to his nature and his mission. He was tempted, as you and I are, to try to be religious and try to be faithful while avoiding danger, by taking shortcuts, by avoiding the cost that our confession requires. He was tempted to win crowds by making bread outside of his father's will. He was tempted to arrest control of the universe and the kingdoms of the earth, but apart from his father's will at the wrong time. He was tempted to go about his mission while avoiding the danger that his mission naturally entailed. Nevertheless, he submitted to his father's will in the garden. With loud cries and tears, the Lord Jesus knows what it is to be tempted to give up to give in, to forsake the Father. 
to depart from the word of God. He knows. But let us not hear that and then squirm as though his strength is a reason for our fear. For what does the passage say? Let us hold fast. And for what reason? Well, we have a high priest. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is no superficial sympathy, platitudes and politeness. None of us can entirely relate with another brother and sister in our congregation. We're to weep with those who weep. But even as one is suffering at times, I don't entirely understand what you may be going through. And yet, rightly, I will with you and you with me be quiet and listen and express, express sympathy and condolences and bear with one another. Even if that's not platitudinous or... I don't mind have made up a word there. Even if that's not, even if that's just, even if that's not just being polite, even if it's sincere, it's not what the Lord Jesus offers to us. For He enters into our pain. He knows our pain perfectly. He knows it firsthand and by experience. So I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what difficulty you have been through recently or in many years past, it leads you to doubt the goodness of God or second guess his goodness or possibly leave off him or offer excuses for sin. But one thing you can't say is that he doesn't understand what you're going through. He understands what you're going through. And let that truth not chase you away because by comparison, you're a sinner and he's not. But let that draw you closer to him, for now you know his heart. This is a matter of his heart. He is drawing your heart to him by sharing his heart with you. And what is his heart towards you? But sympathy and understanding in your weakness, your weakness and mine. This is no shallow word of sympathy, but a very deep word. A word that comes from his real experience, his real distress, his real temptation. Friend, he understands. We've been given a command, a responsibility, a requirement even. And we've been given good reason to hold fast to Jesus for he is a great high priest. Just consider where he has gone and just consider where he has been for you. You can't think up a better priest than Jesus. Now finally we turn to lay hold of the resources that we need to hold fast. Our triune God stands ready and willing to help. And so let us pray to him for it. This last verse here concerns our relationship with God our posture toward him, expressed and experienced in prayer. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He wants you to come freely, and he wants you to come needy, and he has done everything he needs to do in order to make that offer good.
And two verbs here, draw near and receive. Let's meditate on each. We are to draw near to God. That is in prayer. The whole purpose of the tabernacle, as we've said, was fellowship between God and his people. But in that day, the word in the old covenant was stay away, but let Aaron go in on your behalf. Well, by his word, because of Jesus' greater priesthood and his greater work, he takes us right into the very presence of God. And you've access to him any time of day. And that's why we pray to him when we come together. Because we have access and fellowship with God. And we go to him. We draw near to him in prayer. And we draw near to him with confidence in prayer. Those Old Testament saints wouldn't have any confidence going any farther than they should. That is toward the tabernacle or the temple. But we're to have confidence going all the way in to where only one person would go once a year. That place is for you and for me. And God has made the way. The curtain has been torn because of Jesus' death on the cross where he took all of your sins away for you. And this is why we don't talk about our worship leaders or about me or, a, or Chris Fraley, one of our elders who prayed this morning, as leading us into the throne of grace. For it is Jesus who leads us to the throne of grace. We just pray together. We all go together. You know, the Lord Jesus has made it possible for us to get that close with God. And we go there together when we pray. So draw near to God in prayer. You think that God is not willing to help you hold fast? Oh yes, he is willing and he has done everything necessary. He has sent his son. The son has given himself on the cross in order that you might draw near to God in prayer. That you might draw near to God in prayer for help in time of need. So let's reflect now on on this word receive. We go to God in prayer, that throne which is a throne of grace where God gives and gives and gives freely what we don't deserve, in order that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And this is very different. We, we ought to pray for our brothers and sisters in foreign lands under evil regimes who punish and even kill fellow Christians. And we can pray for all of the chess that goes on between nations and sanctions. We can pray for those or whatever our nation's leaders deem best, that, that pressure might be relieved. We can pray for that. But in the first place, we should pray for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters that they might hold fast regardless of the pressures that they are under. And we can pray this way because we know that when we pray, the Lord gives mercy and the Lord gives grace. He gives mercy You feel like you don't deserve help from God? Well, you're right. You don't deserve any help from Him. And you, deserve, you deserve hell, actually. But God is a God of mercy, and He's shown us mercy on the cross, and apparently He's not even done showing mercy after that. He is happy to keep showing you mercy. Wonder if you're worthy of mercy right now? 
Well, in your humanity and because of your sin, you're not worthy of mercy. But God shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. Look at the cross and then look to Jesus and draw near to God. He is giving mercy and he is giving grace. You think that maybe God can't help you? Well, that's surely not true. He can help you. As sure as he, he did not help his son on the cross. And then as sure as he raised him from the dead, he is perfectly ready and willing to help you. But that most important question, that question underneath this whole passage, driving the book is the suspicion that he doesn't really understand what you're going through. And so that even if he might help you, because he can, he doesn't want to help you. And the message to us from this passage of Scripture, entirely comforting, is that this is a God who understands and who stands ready and willing to help. And for that reason, we must, we must, we must pray to him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for a high priest who is so great. For one who has taken all of our sins away, for he took them on himself. And for one who has gone through the heavens where he prays for us. Help us, each of us and as a church, to grow in our vision of you as a God who stands ready and eagerly willing to dispense mercy and to dispense grace to us in time of need. And may we be a people who come freely to you and who come needy to you. Father, where there are some maybe who have not prayed to you for some time, maybe the only time they pray to you is when we gather in this room. We are grateful that we can pray together, but we pray that we would be a people that seeks you when we leave, that we seeks you in our times of need, that we would not, in our times of need, feel ashamed and therefore hide from you, waiting to be good enough to be heard by you, but that we would understand that in our times of temptation, we need not feel ashamed, but rather run to you for the help that you are so happy to freely give. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.